Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. Benjamin Wagner is the founder of a consulting firm called Essential Industries Incorporated, but that's not all Benjamin does, nor is it all that Benjamin has done. Over the course of his life, Benjamin has worn many hats. He's been a journalist, he's been a musician, he's been a documentary filmmaker. Mr. Rogers and Me aired on PBS. Benjamin co-created that documentary. He currently hosts a podcast called Friends and Neighbors. Uh, Friends and Neighbors is a show that's fundamentally about empathy, listening to the stories of other life experiences, or rather, of the life experiences of others. It shares quite a bit ideologically with this podcast, so there's no coincidence that I was a guest on Friends and Neighbors just a week ago, and even if I wasn't a guest, I would want to welcome Benjamin to Detoxicity, because I think he has a fantastic story to tell. This is hopefully the first conversation of many occurring on and offline, and this conversation follows Benjamin's journey from the Midwestern-born child of divorce to moving up the corporate ladder, to realizing that being at or near the top of the corporate ladder was killing him and find out what the moves were that he has made since leaving the uh, what some would consider the pinnacle of career success. So uh, check out what Benjamin has to say. Here's my new pal. Well, I've gotten to the point where I say I'm a consultant and a creator. I have a you know, 30 year history in journalism media and technology. And I worked at Facebook and MTV News for many, many years in New York City and have since decamped. So now I consult and coach around that stuff. And as a creator, there's obviously a lot of overlap with the journalism and the writing. I'm a documentary filmmaker. I've got one under my belt called Mr. Rogers and Me that I did with my brother about 10 years ago on PBS and working on a second one now. I'm a singer-songwriter, dozens of records and have one coming out imminently. Yeah. So consultant and creator. I like the that you <laughs> succinctly put your things together because when people have a lot of balls in the air, sometimes the pitch is so long. And I don't even think I've gotten it down to yeah. a science yet, but you put it in two words, basically. So that's well, it's impressive. Worth, it's worth noting that that comes with a lot of um, thought and work because one of my objectives when I left New York, when I left Viacom and, and Facebook was to to do a better job of integrating my interests and my skills to be more capable of talking about who I am more holistically. Cause I often felt I would do one thing from eight to six or eight to eight, and then I would jump in a cab or hop on the subway and go downtown and do another. Right. And so part of my objective was to try and find places and ways that I could integrate a little more effectively. The podcast is a good example, right? Like I talked to people from all, all sort of facets of my life because there's more interlap, overlap than not. Gotcha. So I'm curious about the Benjamin Wagner origin story. Yeah. One of those things that you can't really find on social media or on your website or, or any of those places. What was the start of you becoming who you are today? Interestingly, the start is actually in my mom's belly. Totally, but check this out. My mom was a, a musician and she was a singer, did plays in high school and, and has a kind of Joan baez voice. Okay. And when she was pregnant with me, wanted to learn classical guitar. James Taylor, Carol King, 
solo Beatles at that point. Like the Beatles broke up in 71. I was born in 71. So there was a lot of music in the house. And specifically that guitar was pressed to her belly the whole time she was pregnant with me. So I find it difficult to believe that GCD E minor, A minor is not sort of embedded in my DNA. Sure. So truly, I, and I just don't remember a time when like a John Denver riff didn't just knock my socks off and touch me deeply. So when you think of the origin story, it's that. My family's um, from the Midwest, from Iowa. My folks were born and raised in Waterloo, Iowa. I was born in Iowa City. And three weeks later, we moved to the Northeast. My dad moved us to the first job he found. And we moved five or six times before I was 10, mostly in the Midwest, Chicago, Indianapolis. Maryland. And then my folks divorced and my mom moved us to suburban Philly where I went to junior high and high. So that's kind of the origin story. A lot of movement anchoring in the Midwest and music as a constant in terms of how I found my center, how I got away from the noise and the chaos of the times when the family wasn't getting along so hot. Yeah. I've never experienced a divorced family or a divorced couple in my family Strangely enough, because my family's fractured in a lot of other ways. Yeah, right. Yeah. But I would imagine that even if your parents tried to protect you from what was going on, and I don't know if they did or didn't, that you were not immune or unaware of yeah. what was going on despite best efforts. I'm certain that they did. I just don't think it was possible. Um, I mean, I'm happily married now, but I can tell you it's challenging to keep the times when my wife and I disagree. Let's maybe point out, we always disagree peacefully with any volume. Yeah, it was noisy. I'm writing about it right now, and I keep coming back to a metaphor of an earthquake. It was noisy. The the walls felt like they were shaken. And as I learn more about what the experience is of a young person, specifically as the frontal lobe isn't quite as developed, right? It takes till you're 20, 25 for your frontal lobe to be able to help make sense of the primitive brain and the emotional brain. So mostly you're just a bundle of feelings and responses. So now that now that I've learned that in the last nine, 10 months, it really helps me understand why it's such a visceral set of memories. And it's mostly just noise, chaos and motion. And I'm certain that's not wholly it. I mean, I, pl- I remember playing wiffle ball in the front yard and riding bikes all over the sure. place and having great sort of a united colors of Benetton neighborhood and friendships, just all kinds of goodness. But when it came to our, our family, it just felt like by the time I was awake enough to, to be present, eight, nine, 10, 11, it was a kind of a hot mess, a lot of motion and a lot of motion and emotion. And once we moved to suburban Philly and my mom was raising us, she had to pay the bills. So she was working quite a bit and we were on our own quite a bit. I can't picture you based on what I know of you and the conversations that we've had having a rebellious bad kid period. I would imagine going through divorce and puberty simultaneously are pretty fucked up. But did you ever act out at the time? Were you cantankerous? Um, No, I don't think anyone would say that. I have an elder brother. He's three years my senior, my closest friend, and one of my closest creative collaborators. Chris is a video editor. We moved to New York City together, lived together for years. Um, and he was the rebel. He was always acting out. He was the one who got arrested first. In fact, I never did. So there you go. He was the one who I think spoke truth to power in a way that when I saw how poorly that went for him, I found different mechanisms to act out. I think getting high and and drinking beer and stuff in high school was rebellious, but no one knew it because I did a really good job covering my ass. In fact, I probably did a really good job covering my ass on a lot of things for a lot of years. Because I think part of the challenge, at least I discover in retrospect is felt like I had to make good and deliver the good grades and the student council and the high school paper stuff. These were all things that I wanted for me, I think, but I'm like, I could just see a cat bringing a, a mouse that it caught to the, to its owner, right? Look, look, I did good. I like, did good. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I have this sense that a lot of uh, that time in my life was about, Hey, look, I done good. Like you guys it can't be that bad. I got an A minus or whatever. So my rebellion was, I think on the DL, my rebellion was telling my dad, I wanted to drop out of college and just move to the mountains and read books, which I, I still that was a thing. Wow. Okay. Well, I, I pitched it. I, <laughs> I didn't land it. Although I give my, my folks some proper credit. When I was 19 years old, I bought a $900 Nissan and a sleeping bag in a tent and AAA triptych and drove from Philadelphia to San Diego and back just on my own with a guitar. So I did get tastes of that, but the Socratic dialogue that's so useful in college was something I definitely enjoyed and benefited and I'm glad I stuck in there with. But my rebellion, I feel like got rounded off a little bit, which probably, you know, sounds about right to you and anybody right. who knows me like, yeah, I definitely wasn't the like 
dual middle finger right in somebody's face at any right. point, really. But just as I said that, I can remember I did try and inspire or or sort of activate the class prank senior year. We solicited a buck from every senior and bought a box full of mice, dozens and dozens of mice. And this is not PETA approved and the statute of limitations is 30 plus years. But the idea was we were going to let the mice go in the cafeteria during lunchtime. And the, the principal he tracked me down and I happened to be carrying a video camera around at the time. I used to do that a lot in high school. They, these were big and new at the time. It would have been the late 80s like late 80s, early yeah, 90s. Totally. Yeah. Yep. And so I'm holding this thing on my shoulder, just shooting the last few days of school. And he, and he pretends he's a newscaster and holds his mimeograph papers like a microphone. He said, hey, this just in. If I see any mice in the high school, you're not graduating. Oh, damn. <laughs> so, I mean, it wasn't quite rebellion, but it was something like it. He, he did not find any mice. Good. Good. <laughs> saved your ass. Yes. And we saved the mice. How did your interest in journalism come about? If you want to be a journalist, I feel like you have to have an interest in people. What makes mm. you tick? Mm -hmm. It's almost like being interested in psychology to an extent. That's Yeah, that's a good point. And yeah. I think the idea of figuring out what makes people tick was being a part of my family and noticing how different we all were and how we did and more often just didn't quite click. I'm guessing. I mean, it's a great question. I hadn't thought of it in terms of the psychology part, because I'm actually often more comfortable on a stage than I am in the audience. So I often prefer this kind of engagement, like one-to-one, one-to-two intimate gatherings. My In high school, everybody threw those big dumb keggers and I'd be like, all right, you eight guys are coming over and we're going to watch some movies and really talk. Yes, we will get drunk, but we're going to really hang out. So I always preferred intimacy. And I think there is a component of the kind of journalism that I prefer that has that that sense of seeking to connect and understand the human experience and the human condition. But I don't remember a time when I didn't love writing and when writing wasn't something that I did to order whatever was happening in my life. I had journals or notebooks and I remember commandeering the family typewriter and literally putting a little press thing in a baseball cap and pretending like I was a news guy. So it was always sort of there. Writing was always um, something I could do and I loved doing. And I just remember wanting to work on the school paper and, and doing all those things. I mean, it just kept going. My first paying assignment was the Suburban and Wayne Times. I was, I don't know, 15 and I wrote the soccer games up. And I'd get like 15 bucks a, a pop and then, and then I'd go in and actually watch them paste up the story for the paper. So at 15, that was a pretty cool experience. Oh, yeah. Like, like in, it was old school. They literally were cutting and pasting. And and then I worked for the school paper and became the managing editor of that and went to the Newhouse School, which was actually known more for broadcast, but a, a great journalism school. And I wrote one thing for the paper there. You'll love this. Um, I had gone down to Athens, Georgia, because I'm a huge RM fan, the end of my senior year with a buddy of mine, just a road trip. And while we were down there, we figured out, I mean, this is, you know, pre-internet, so you couldn't be like Google something to find all the places you should <laughs> sure. visit to understand. I mean, even where the trestle from the front of their chronic town or the murmur record was, I had no idea. You just couldn't know back then, but we wandered around and I knew Peter Buck's wife at the time ran the 40 Watt Club. So, and I knew that their offices were somewhere near the 40 Watt Club because I just read it in Rolling Stone. That was the only source <laughs> I had, right? So I somehow figured out how to pitch... REM on behalf of the Syracuse University newspaper to, to write up their next album. And they said, yes, here's the time for your interview. I mean, I didn't have a tape recorder. I had never conducted an interview with anyone outside of my high school. you know. And I got Michael Stipe as my first interview ever. How badly to, did you shit yourself? Uh, I mean, I was, how badly did I shit the bed when I, the good news is I got to interview him a second time. So I kind of got to do a better job, but I prepared as only I knew how to, I thought I was writing a biography about his whole life, not basically answering the four questions about the new record. So right. I'm like, well, I have about 40 questions here. And he goes, pick your favorites. <laughs> I'll never forget that. And then in the middle of it, he's like, hold on a second. He puts his hand over the mic and I can hear him making lunch plans, which in retrospect, I realize is a very strong signal to tell me to piss off. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like go kid. Yeah. But he was cantankerous. It was a different time. And I think in his sort of media friendliness, but anyway, that was my first interview. And it's just something beautiful about how that unfolded. I feel like a lot of my life has unfolded similarly, like a little bit of curiosity, a little bit of luck, a little bit of preparedness, and uh, some pretty neat outcomes sometimes. Yeah. It took you, uh, to MTV 
Yeah. And and you had a nice long career there. Yeah. And uh, I find it interesting when someone makes their mind up about what they want to do at a young age and then actually does it. Yeah, me too. Because life throws so many curveballs to most people in those in-between years. And mine, I mean, I, I didn't know what I wanted when I was 14, 15 years old. I, I couldn't articulate it anyway. So to have that presence of mind and the whatever you call the stick-to-itiveness or the see-through-itiveness to actually follow that all the way to the goal is, I think, pretty impressive. Thank you. I mean, it's funny because it doesn't often seem that way in your own experience, right? In my own body, in my memory, frankly, for a long time, I remember saying, I either want to be on the cover of Rolling Stone or I want to write for Rolling Stone. And when I moved to New York with my brother, I was about to take a job at a coffee shop and the night before training, he goes, listen, man, if you take that job, you're never going to get the job you want. So I got you. I'll cover you for as long as you need, but go get the right job. And son of a bitch, like, and again, this is like, I want to acknowledge privilege where it exists. Like I'd gone to Syracuse so I could call them and I said, Hey, who do you at Rolling Stone in the alumni department? And they had some guy, a guy named Pete Wilkinson. And I called him because back then you called or you sent a letter. And I called him and, and I met him down at the White Horse Tavern a couple of days after the Oklahoma City. Oh bombing. man, White Horse yeah, Tavern. Yeah. R.I.P. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Legend. I mean, this guy was the, just like the white t-shirt, the leather bomber jacket, the wayfarers. I mean, it was just like central casting. And he basically was like, well, I'm, I can't get you a job, but I can get you an internship. Meanwhile, I've got like two years of real newspaper work at a upstate newspaper under my belt. I'm like, wait a second, internship. But I took it. And a couple of weeks later, somebody said, hey, we're launching this thing on CompuServe, which no one knew at that point. <laughs> Does anybody have any online writing clips or whatever? Like they're different from any other writing. And I happened to have a 1400 baud modem because I happened to have a Mac. And again, luck, timing. Wow. And so I pitched him and the first assignment was Weezer at Central Park Summer Stage with Teenage Fan Club opening. And I kind of shaded Weezer and I totally loved up Teenage Fan Club, which feels just about consistent with my point of view on music. Um, so yeah, I mean, I moved to New York City with my brother in April and I started at Rolling Stone in, I don't know, June, uh, in mid-June. So it is pretty surprising in retrospect. At the same time, I wanted the cover story, man. I wanted Brian Hyatt's job. I wanted Cameron right. Crowe's job. Right. You know, so like there's a part of me that still doesn't give myself credit for that achievement. Give yourself and, credit. And the MTV thing, similarly, the quick story is I worked for Lifetime Television for about a year there. And I was like, I don't want to do this job, but I needed the money and I needed the training. And they were going to teach me how to do HTML and Photoshop and stuff like that. It's early web, man. It's like 95, six. Goodness gracious. And so I'm in Chicago at the Democratic National Convention for Lifetime time. I'm alone. I got like a laptops and cameras and I just stick my hand out to the one dude who looks like, I don't know, empathetic or thoughtful or like not a jerk. And he ends up being the guy who runs MTV. And I noticed all the tattooed and cool kids around him. So I had some sense <laughs> of it. And a couple of weeks later, Michael Alex called me and said, Hey, we're launching MTV news online. Would you like to do it? And I was like, yeah, I think I made him swing on that for a little bit longer. So I helped him. We launched the Daily news operation, me and a dude named Robert Mancini, one writer and one basically producer. And I stuck around for 18 years and in 2008, got a kind of battlefield promotion the day after the market fell apart in that housing bubble right. to run the whole kit and caboodle and basically transform sort of the 10 to the hour, every hour, Kurt Loader world, which was still hang, hanging on and all nothing but love and respect for Kurt Loader. But the 10 to the hours were, there were like three left because they would rather sell them then give them to us. You know what I mean, right. So I, 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 I played a role in sort of this transformation to digital 24 seven digital social SEO, all that stuff. And did that for, I guess, another six years. It was a man, what an arc. It, it's funny. <laughs> it compresses 18 years, compresses quickly. If you're doing something that's linear. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and looking back, I'm about, I don't know, 60% of the way. I've got the major stories from all the components of my life written down in this book that I suspect is a 2023 release if I self-publish or, and if it's bigger than it, you know, later, but it's full of crazy stories. But at the same time, it's like 18 years is a ton of life. You know? That's right. And, and you, I'm not super, super aware or present in my body or my own life at 26, 27, 28 in the way that I feel like I am at 40, 45. Who is? Right, exactly. exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
going back to your childhood for a second. So you were raised primarily by your mom? Yeah. I mean, to my father's credit, he would drive out on a Friday night and spend the weekend in suburban Philly and then get in his car and get back to work by Monday. However many weeks or weekends a year, he and my mom had worked out. And in the summer, we'd go out there for a couple of weeks to Indianapolis where he ended up again. But mostly day to day, one of the notes I keep writing to put into the book, because it's one thing to tell the stories. It's another thing to try and make points about the stuff that either didn't happen or was missing or that somehow sets up sort of the idea that there was some maladaption going on, that like certain parts didn't sort of evolve or adapt in the way that I guess I would have hoped or one might expect them to. And just a silly little example of that is like, I, I still can't tie a good tie. I, I certainly can't do a good double Windsor. And you may be able to relate here, man. Maybe your grandfather was able to help, but there was nowhere to go to be like, how do I shave? I mean, my brother kind of showed me, but he didn't really care. <laughs> you know I mean? It was funny. I was just about to say that. I never properly learned how to shave. Yeah. You know, when I was 13 or, or 14, it was just like, okay, here's a dusty ass razor. Yeah. Yeah. Figure it yeah, out. Yeah. yeah. I still, I mean, as you've probably gathered, I still am not a huge fan of it and I don't do it very often. But, <laughs> well, um, you've got the fashionable stubble at least. Yeah, that's right. You don't look like a, a, a wolf man. No, I insist on, on on roles in my career that do not require a close shave. But <laughs> yeah. Those are silly little examples. And to the discussion of masculinity, which is central to your pod, that I, say, I mean, back to the discussion we had just prior to hitting record, this idea of living in a community where sports and golf and finance are, are interesting to people. Like, and I don't mean to associate those. Well, I do mean to associate those things with masculinity because they don't do much for me. And they're even so when I think, surface. Yeah. And even when I think about the things that I love at MTV news or Facebook, it was the people stuff and it was the creating stuff from nothing. It wasn't how, what's our ROI ever. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> only insofar as I needed to drive ROI to keep my job and keep growing whatever I was doing. But so, but so yeah, it was mostly my mom and my brother to some degree, although he, by the time I was at 13, he was damn near gone to college and certainly checked out hanging out with his high school friends. And my mom is real accomplished. She was teaching at the University of Pennsylvania and then starting her own advertising firm and then working in New York City. So again, as I write in the book, like it was me and my brother after school for a couple hours every day, which Chris and I were talking about it just two days ago. He's like, I don't know. I kind of liked it. And I was like, yeah, like I get that. But I don't know. In retrospect, if I could trade it, well, no, I wouldn't trade anything. <laughs> well, here's the thing. You'll appreciate this, Mike, right? I wouldn't trade anything because as soon as I met my wife and then had these babies, I'm like, oh, this is just the, how, the way the dots connect. And I don't want to trade any of that stuff because I'm really happy and moreover, really grounded and finding so much meaning in where I am in the present. But I would have kind of preferred like a little more like I realized structure and sort of certainty again I'm sure you can relate man it was just a lot of flux and a lot of self-determination which is obviously of use and value but gosh when you're 13 I, I don't know I wouldn't mind in retrospect a little bit more guidance you know? yeah yeah it's not having a helping hand when you could probably use a helping hand the most yeah. And I don't want to shade my parents. I mean, right. my mom, like when I moved to the new school district and my math skills were woefully behind, she was a champion, got the district to step up and help me out and got me into a tutor and stuff like that. So as my brother likes to point out for the big stuff, absolutely. It's just the day to day. I mean, again, back to the, the like getting to baseball practice or getting to the orthodontist or learning how to shave and tie a tie, stuff like that. And you must have a sense of this from at least the little bit of back and forth to Detroit that you experienced or the idea that your household had a lot of people coming and going, which is there was a lot of motion. So for me in particular, there was a lot of flying back and forth from Philadelphia to the Midwest and often alone. I don't even think I realized how impactful that was until I left New York City, got a little patch of green grass of my own here in uh, Wilmington, Delaware. And I sit in that backyard so many times and this little patch of green and look up at the stars and just am so glad I'm not moving so fast. And that goes to living in New York, goes to global travel for Facebook and a lot of national travel at MTV. 
but it all relates, right? Even the idea, the, the, one of the ways I describe the book is how I got the jobs of my dreams and they almost killed me. Right. You know I mean? In a lot of ways, if you can't imagine a worse scenario for a kid who flew back and forth between his divorced parents than flying to like Singapore, Sydney, Jakarta, Manila. You know what I mean, it's kind of nice to just sit still and be like, what's going on right yeah. now in yeah. my body, in the world around me? Yeah. I want to put a pin in that for just one second. Yeah. There was something that you said a little earlier that made me raise my eyebrow a little bit. And you were talking about hanging out with your friends as a teenager and wanting to grab like smaller groups and say, let's just talk yeah. as opposed to going out like looking for girls or yeah. hanging out. I'm trying to think of teenage things yeah. that I'm not pulling from movies, hanging out at the mall. Is that what right. kids do? I don't know. Right. <laughs> Whatever right. yeah, it is. Yeah. No, I understand. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't seem to me, at least in my experience, like something that teenagers can articulate. Maybe they want to do it, but it's not the cool thing to do. Well, Were you always sure of yourself in that way? A good, interesting question. I was aware then that I didn't feel as comfortable in large settings or the sort of big social things that a lot of that seemed to be, to your point, the kind of tropes, right? I always go to the big party with a pizza on the turntable, <laughs> <laughs> right? That kind of thing. Or I don't know, driving around a bunch. Like I, I did prefer, and now that I know what I know about the nervous system, <laughs> right? And the idea that it's possible that my adrenaline and cortisol was already sort of pegged, or at least it was at a certain level of fight or flight, kind of constant vigilance and alert that what I was really looking for was a the kind of meaningful relationship that you and I are developing, right? Where I'm gaining trust and comfort and safety in this person. Right. Because that's, frankly, it just makes your, my heart beat less quickly and it makes my chest less tight and it makes my feet feel like they're connected to the earth, right? And I'm mapping my adult experience and language on my adolescent one here, clearly, right? But at the same time, I was absolutely aware of the fact. I mean, I would throw parties Wherever I, I would have a few people over and I'd have to put a sign in the front yard, like on the front door, because I didn't want everyone to think that it was for everybody. And it wasn't because I was being exclusive and it was a cool kid thing. It was because A, I didn't want to risk getting busted. And B, I just wanted a low key thing. Music and a few friends was always just fine by me. It still is. It's still a tension in my life with this community and my wife and the kind of things that people like to do as adults. I, I had to go to a party last weekend that must have been 100 people in someone's lawn with the flip cup and the beer pong and, and all of it. I did like three hours, which I felt like was... That's a, uh, I'm going to yeah. clap it up for you on that one. Well, and I said straight up to my wife, I was like, listen, I'm going to put in this amount of time. We're going to take two separate cars and you stay as late as you want. And I'm skedaddling. And I told her the next morning, the best part of that whole party was driving home. <laughs> Windows down, tunes cranked. And I'm like, ah, oh, the relief. Yeah. And, and listen, for some people that if that's their thing, great. It's just not my thing. Right. Again, knowing what I know about how the brain works and mental health, it, it's makes a lot more sense. It's, it's I, social phobia. It makes me uncomfortably around tons and tons of people. But again, to flash forward, what was my job at Facebook? Well, one of them was to go to Singapore, for example, get 150 people in a room, stand on stage, and then go mingle with all of them. So, I mean, you just ask yourself, what a weird life where the very thing that is so uncomfortable becomes something that I actually can do pretty well and that people actually look to me to do. <laughs> but it's, it's because a, I think I'm seeking that intimacy. So even if I'm with some broadcast network in Delhi, I'm still trying really hard to connect. In yep. I, I get that. And I think you and I have similarities in that way. I, I was going to say that I just saw these uh, many photos of you looking fantastic at this huge event. You're clearly working the room. I'm good at schmoozing. I don't know how comfortable I am doing it. It feels like a mask that I got to put on, right? Um, right. Not like I'm being somebody else, but I'm being right. Mike plus, plus, plus. Yes. And I would much rather just be Mike and have yeah. five or six people. When I have people over, it's like six or seven people. We're in a room. We're in a circle having conversations, playing games, listening to music. Right. I want to be my most comfortable, my happiest is with a smaller group or one-on-one -one and, and I feel like when I'm doing the large group thing, I know how to do it well, but there is a level of anxiety yeah. that I have to channel into 
being able to schmooze properly. Right. And it's Likewise. just like years of practice being able to do yeah. it means that I'm good at it, but it's not yeah. me at my most natural. Yeah. And it's actually kind of taxing on my system in a way that I've mm -hmm. only come to realize in the last 10 years or so. It reminds me of this scene in um, the Sam Jones movie, I'm Trying to Break Your Heart about Wilco, when Jeff Tweedy's backstage and he's basically surrounded post-show with sycophants and like music journalists. And they're making the most just the worst, shallowest of small talk. <laughs> and he's holding the drink awkward for like two minutes. And he just goes, okay, I'm going to go walk away now. And he walks away. And the Good for Sam, Jeff. It's amazing, right? And Sam holds the shot. And one by one, these people realize they have nothing in common to talk about. And they all just wander off. And you see how he's the center of the whole galaxy. Right. But that feeling that he is clearly expressing is so resonant with me. Yeah, it's hard to explain. But it, I, like, I compare it to today, as we record this, it's a Friday. I have been out and around people Saturday, Sunday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It was just a lot of social time. Yeah. And today, I don't want to see another fucking human being. Totally, yeah. I don't want to put on yeah. shoes. I don't want to like answer the phone. Yeah. I don't want to do any, because my social capital is like, yeah. So I did this fellowship at Columbia called the Salzburger Fellowship. It's now called the Media Transformation Challenge at Pointer. But it was uh, 15 or 20 media executives. And it was really a good part of McKinsey business approach and a whole lot of discussion and activity and work towards transformation, which is my favorite word. You'll notice it's all over my website. It's how I talk about what I do because change is having the same state in a different place or with a different color, but transformation is it can't ever be the same thing. Right. But I had this great coach and we were doing this temperament work and she, we were talking about introvert, extrovert, Myers-Briggsy type stuff. And, um, I said, I, I seem to be getting a score that has me kind of in between the two. And she goes, well, tell me this, when you're looking to refuel and recharge, do you move towards a crowd or away? And I was like, away no doubt. And she's like, well, that sounds a little more introverted. And I thought, Jesus, how could it be that I love to stand on stage to lead in the plays and I play in a rock band and I run the organizations and I like to be leading meetings, but I'm an introvert, but I feel gregarious. It's taken a lot of, a lot to wrap my head around. It's, it's a weird conundrum. And I mean, obviously there are other people who have those, I mean, we can't be the only yeah. people in the world who feel that way. <laughs> so talking about your corporate years, I'm, oh. I'm actually thinking of the movie, there's this George Clooney movie, I think it's called Up in the Air, where yes. he's the HR professional, he's just traveling back and forth, firing uh, people or whatever it is. Yeah, 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 one of my favorite movies. Okay. Uh, and I'd love to hear what makes you go to that, and then I'll give you feedback. I think of the constant going back and forth and not being centered in a way, just kind of having this, okay, well, this week I'm going to X place and Y place, I got to get on this plane, got to get these tickets, make sure my points are straight get my security clearance, blah, blah, blah. And some people groove off of that. That's a very sexy life for some people. When you think of musicians or, or uh, people who tour all the time and are going from city to city, place to place. And I understand that that kind of life works for some people. Me, I am the type of person that really needs to have a home base yeah, and need that on a regular basis. And journalism is a very dynamic job. You need to be moving all the time. And it sounds like with what you were doing for Facebook, it was another situation where you were moving all the time. Yeah. I'm asking a question that I kind of know the answer to. <laughs> but did it get to a point where you were like, oh, shit, why am I doing all of this? It took a long time to get to that point. And, and it's only apparent now. In fact, I feel like there's a lot of people who knew me for a lot of years who saw the posts I put on Facebook a couple of weeks ago about the stuff I'm wrestling with in terms of just trying to get myself centered and grounded and figure out why I felt so disconnected. Or a line I use in a song on this new record is like I had a Elvis had a, a stillborn twin, and I, I for some reason have this thing about going to Jesse. Correct. Yep. Cheers to you. <laughs> I, I've gone to Graceland like four or five times in my life for, for no reason other than it's an interesting pop culture place. But I just developed this idea recently and that there's a part of me that's like me, but lesser me, but more wounded. And I recently kind of put this language to this broken, battered twin. And, and the broken, battered twin is probably me at 10, 11, 12, right? It's the kid that's hurting. And so he puts on the press hat or the suit or mm. whatever and puts his chin up and puffs his chest and had to sit at the front of the board room 
meeting and run it because that's the gig he got. And there's a part, and I think I did did pretty well at that. And and I, I want to be fair, enjoyed a lot of it. So I, I worry that people I worked with are like, was he faking it the whole time? No, he just didn't know it's, exactly what was going on. It's funny. Uh, we've done this a couple of times already over this conversation where we're kind of walking back things we say to yeah, not, others. yeah, to not give others the impression that we're blaming them for anything. Right. Or that I was being disingenuous. Right. I was being as genuine as I could be. I've just come to learn that I, I maybe could have been a little clearer with me first and them second, but I had to be clear with me first. And right. so to my previous point, I think a lot of that, a lot of that drive was uh, part of that thing I was describing about like, well, if I just do well, if I just achieve and succeed, either A, I'll be happy or B, my parents will be happy. I just think honestly, Mike, there's a part of a kid who goes through a divorce, at least this kid that was like, well, maybe if I do better, then they'll be in love and it'll be okay. Mm -hmm then they'll get back together. There's just a little boy in, in me, as I think there's in most men and a little girl in most women that, or a little person, those things are there. So I think that achievement thing was partly like, well, for me, if I do really well, then I'll be happy. I'll have all the things, right? And there is an identity thing that you touched on, right? And I think it's interesting that I worked at two very recognizable, very large brands or three, if you want to toss in Rolling Stone. And that, because it comes to the shorthand, and it was a shorthand that kind of protected me from a harder conversation or a more detailed explanation, which I find it much more difficult to explain what I'm doing now to people. You know what I mean? So I, back to Up in the Air, what I love so much about that movie is you feel his sadness. You feel his broken, battered twin, Clooney. And when you brought him up, I thought about the times I had to let people go. It was In 2008, we had to let 30 people go in one day. There were like uh, four of us who had to do all 30. And you just read from a script, man. A woman I work with calls trauma anytime you have to abandon your authentic self in order to survive. Well, my authentic self wouldn't read from a script. Right. right? So there's maybe a little trauma. In fact, I had a really nice conversation with the guy who hired me who long since left MTV um, about this stuff. Just corporations, I mean, uh, Mr. Rogers and me, the film my brother and I made, a lot of people think it's a movie about Fred Rogers and it is, but he was pretty revolutionary. And if you really get under the hood a little bit, you see he's actually asking some real hard questions about capitalism, for example, right? And he'd say, well, it's not the fancy things that matter in life. In other words, accrue all the stuff that you want, but ain't going to do the trick, right? That's right. So my point is like corporations really are just going to ring you out for whatever your value is. And then they're going to go on to the next person. They're yes. going to pay you for exactly what they want to pay you. No more, no less. And then you're going to be discarded. It's just a unfortunate fact of the system. I suspect there are organizations that do better with that than others. And of course, most don't come out and act quite that way. Some seem to be lately. Hello, Amazon. But in retrospect, it's funny, right? Because I can't undo it. A, B, I learned a ton. C, I've met a universe of humans that I never would have uh, guessed right on down to meeting you, right? Because all roads lead to where we are today. It still gets me indoors when I cold call people to pitch them or to ask for help. And I loved every, well, no, I didn't love every second of it. I loved many seconds of it, but it's that part where you have to not be honest and true. Uh, and there's a lot of that because when you and I wake up in the morning, it's not about driving revenue or optimizing anything, right? It's like, how do I exist in the world in a way that is good for the world, that is good for me, that is good for the people around me, that is good for my community. And that knows nothing to do with revenue or return on investment almost yeah. ever. You, I mean, know? you know, once I get into day job mode, then I, I have to force myself yeah. into that method of thought. Yeah. But I still try to combine that with sure. how can I make what I'm doing, even within this capitalistic confine. Yeah good for the people, whether it's people that I work with or the people that I work for, how can I do this and not completely compromise myself? Yeah, of course. In fact, when I started at Facebook, I made that commitment to myself. At this point, I had put out Mr. Rogers and me, and I felt like I had a template or a, a good model for how to be in the world. And I was like, I'm going to be my authentic self, damn the torpedoes. And I think I did a better job speaking truth to power, speaking up when things didn't feel right. But at the same time, a buddy of mine said, and I were talking the other day, and he's like, Man, 
you were talking the jargon, you were wearing the suit, the hoodie, the whole thing. I right. Like, yeah, I guess. I mean, you know, listen, I did what I did and I, I walked my best walk, but it is really interesting to look back at it. And I don't rule out stepping into a world that's that square again. I mean, the, my hope as a consultant is that I don't have to be institutionalized as my friend Justin at, at the Stanford Design School would say to me, he'd be like, of course you're unhappy, man. You're institutionalized, <laughs> you know? And then now that I stepped out of it, it is a very different feeling and looking back at it, it looks different. But uh, yeah, man, I relate to Clooney's character. I so, do not fit everything in a backpack, however, <laughs> see, as you can see around me. Sometimes you got to be a light packer. Yeah. <laughs> was there a definitive breaking point? Was it more like a slow decay or was there just a fuck this moment? It was a slow decay with a few fuck this moments. I got, I mean, most of them were, I want to be a little cautious here a couple of organizational changes that in my last five years, I was only at Facebook for seven, so they can help you on the timeline. You can reverse engineer it. Didn't feel like as authentic or as close to the kind of integrity I was interested in manifesting. There were moments in like 2017, 18, where I thought, I got to get out of here. And I've always been a huge fan of two things, many things, but one, therapy and two, executive coaching, which aren't terribly dissimilar, let's be honest. And this one dude I was working with and still work with actually said to me, I think what you're experiencing is fight or flight, right? This is pre anyone saying anything to me about understanding my own nervous system or my own cortisol or my own adverse childhood experiences or anything. He said, extract as much learning as you can, keep getting that Facebook paper and plan your exit. So you're not doing it under duress. And that was the moment in about 2017, 18, when Abby and I started talking about how do we do something different? And Abby's from Wilmington, Delaware, suburban Philadelphia, we were coming back here on the weekends with kids and we were talking about other places like Nashville. And I was really interested in small towns, Asheville, smaller towns, I guess. And Nashville is not so small, but compared to New York city, most everything. Everything's right. small. <laughs> I was even like, how about Des Moines? And she was Ooh. like, no Des Moines, right? Ooh. Yeah. Well, remember I'm from Iowa and I got a lot of dear friends in Des Moines. But uh, so we were coming back here and one Sunday night as we were putting on our superhero suits to drive the kids back into Manhattan, we just looked at each other and we're like, we could just stay. And we kind of made the call, I guess, in the end of 2018, started doing this sort of work in 2019. This is pre-pandemic. We moved out of our apartment in uh, New York City in June of 2019. I kept a little kind of crash pad in Hell's Kitchen and I was going back and forth, but my family moved in June of 2019. And I would say in terms of slow decay, that accelerated it because my family was living in Wilmington. I had a place in New York and I was traveling globally and I was working all hours. I would do a meeting with Sydney at nine o'clock at night and I would you know, then have to work all day or whatever. That's a lot. It was a lot. Well, then you throw in the pandemic, right? And then everything gets locked down and we're just working in our laptops and staring in this room, staring at this laptop all the time. And the alcohol consumption goes up and the little chips of Xanax get smaller, but more frequent. And the pot goes from, oh, I haven't done it in 20 years to, oh, it's back full force. And I'm, dude, I'm too aware of, I'm too, what is more metacognitive, right? I'm too aware of my awareness <laughs> to not be like, bro. Something's going on here. Yeah. yeah. And the whole move was part of recalibrating, or as I said, getting square with myself. I knew it years ago. In fact, I think my wife probably wishes I'd tipped her off earlier because it was all spinning in my head for years. And then last year, almost a year, I just had an opportunity to either keep the nose on the grindstone and keep spinning up new futures in my laptop. I mean, in the virtual world of corporate work because nobody was going back to any offices and nobody was going to do any in-person things in Singapore or Sao Paulo or anything like that, which is what 2020 was supposed to be for me. In February, I was supposed to be doing a huge conference in Singapore. Uh, and then in March, we'd be in Detroit. And then in July, we'd be in Sao Paulo. And I mean, that stuff was not coming back. Right. And I was dying inside and I just hung up the phone with my manager and I turned to my wife and I said, I think it's time. And she goes to write the book. I love that she finished that sentence for me. <laughs> it was so cool. So, and hung a shingle and started working. That's amazing. How were you able to get the substance use in check? Or was it just something that was like, okay, well, I don't have to deal with this stress anymore, so I don't need this. I'll give you the really honest answer. Well, yeah. 
First, I knew well enough because I read enough about how things like Paxil and Zoloft that you titrate up and you titrate down. So I was just like, well, I'm not going to go from doing all this garbage to doing zero garbage. So I just started knocking it out one at a time. And I ran out of Xanax. Xanax was just prescribed to me to fly. But I would find myself like going into pitch Philippe Dumas in the 50th floor of the Viacom building with 120 white guys staring at me and cracking jokes in their suits. And I'd be like, <laughs> I need half a Xanax. <laughs> I get that. And, yeah, man. So that went first. And second, I was like, well, let's just see what happens if I don't have any SSRI in me. Um, there hadn't been a ton anyway, um, but enough that I was like, let's just see what happens. And then a, a therapist said to me, uh, wow, it sounds like you had a kind of a tough childhood there between the divorce and the broken jaw, which I don't think we touched on, but Whoa. I got assaulted when I was 16 and kind of sucker punched. It was, as a friend said to me recently, it was kind of like getting shot by a sniper because it wasn't like I squared off with some guy who said, I want to fight you. I just was got it just... pulled out of a car and my jaw was broken. Holy and shit, pretty, dude. But this guy said to me, it sounds like you had a pretty, pretty rough go there maybe for a couple of years. Have you, you ever taken an ACE test? And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and turned me on to the world adverse, of adverse childhood experiences and the idea that it's a pretty normal response to, to trauma, particularly adverse childhood trauma stuff that um, you experience before you have sort of the frontal lobe's ability to create narrative and order and and make sense of it, right? As adults, you and I have a better shot of making sense of things than right. we did when we were seven or I'm eight. actually going to write that down in ACE test. Yeah. Oh, well, I Google it because you can take it. There's a, really just like 10 questions. You can take a much deeper version, but the, the short version is it's based on a Kaiser Permanente study in the 90s, 17,000 respondents, and they saw a correlation between obesity and sexual abuse as in children, right? So a lot of older people were having a hard time losing weight because it related to a defense mechanism that they'd built as children. And so it began this interrogation of correlating what happens to young people in terms of neglect or abuse or stuff like poverty, food insecurity, the, the sort of things that basically make us feel unsafe, right? And the idea is if we are chronically unsafe, I always go to this giraffe on the savannah, just a, <laughs> a heartbeat away from giraffe on the savannah. And any creature on earth, for the most part, at least any mammal, responds to danger the same way. It basically has a bunch of chemicals in its body that go out to the limbs and say, move fast, right? Or stop in place. And really the brain is primary operation, is primary objective, the frontal lobe notwithstanding, the part that we call the enlightenment, you know, the sort of enlightened human part, the thing that we really privilege in Western culture, but mostly our, our bodies are just to protect us. You know? right. So I dove right in once I learned a little bit, but the, once I learned a little bit that like, oh, it's a pretty reasonable response if you're constantly on high alert or hypervigilant as, as my therapist would say, to try and find ways to cope and mediate. And back to music, songwriting is clearly a mechanism for me to cope. Playing my guitar, writing songs is always a way to get me back in my body. I mean, it makes sense, right? You're breathing, you're feeling notes vibrate in your whole body, right? And back to the womb, I mean, what's more safe than the womb? I'm literally going back to the G chord from when I was just you were a, tiny a baby, yeah. of, you were yeah, a little, tiny yeah. bundle of cells. And so to your question of how I kind of got off the junk, I took it one step at a time. And once I understood that I didn't need to feel as ashamed. It wasn't about me being weak. It wasn't about, or at least it wasn't solely about society, at least the just say no society that I was raised in, right? Reagan era and after was like, well, if you do drugs, A, you're bad. You made the wrong choice, right? You're going to die. Right. It's a weakness. And what uh, Victor, what shit? I was, where's it? What's, I got to Google his name. But it, <laughs> the, the guy who wrote uh, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, it's really a reasonable coping me mechanism. It's why so many Americans drink, you know, Budweiser, or White Claw. And I think. That's why you saw a spike in something like a 23% increase in binge drinking throughout the pandemic. People were stressed out, right? And what do you do when you're stressed out? Most people don't think of this as a direct line, but there's an obvious pattern between, oh, people are freaked out. They have a beer or two or three or four or a scotch or whatever, right? There's a reason people come home and pour themselves a drink. So for me, getting off of this stuff was really both understanding what was happening in my body in a new way and then cutting it out one by one. And also, I got to say, man, and this is just where I start to sound really cliche, I was a marathon runner, surprise, surprise, back to achievement in New York City. I did t t 10 New York City marathons. Good Lord, man. Year after year after year in my 30s and 40s. And then I did a couple others and I did a bunch of triathlons and I was chronically 
in pain, mostly in my hips, uh, my ischial tubes, which is like what you sit on, my hamstrings. And so I started doing yoga about a year and a half ago, mostly because a runner buddy of mine was like, hey, you want to stretch when we're done? And I was like, stretch? <laughs> what stretch? <laughs> Funny. But, but then I was like, well, as long as I'm stretching, and he had done it with a Peloton video, I was like, well, I'll just do a Peloton yoga and see what that feels like. And then I was like, what happens if I do a week's worth? And guess what? felt fucking great. And I didn't just feel great in my muscles. I felt great in my body all the way from my brain to my toes. And now I know why, because breathing brings us back away from our extremities and back to the body. That's why you always hear you bring it back to the body, the body back to right. the body. It brings you back to your, I'll probably get this wrong, but it's parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system, right? It basically brings you back to stasis brings your heartbeat down it stops that tightening in the chest the tightening in my jaw so it's all those things rolled into one and it's been kind of a practice I, I hate to say but if i don't do yoga i'm edgier and it's funny <laughs> my wife can always tell when i'm stressing because i'll take a bunch of deep breaths and and i'm not gasping but you can tell i'm taking deep breaths and i mean it's just different than my normal breath and it just works in the same way that when i was 26 and i would light up a camel light i thought it worked camel lights made- yeah, we even smoked the same cigarettes, Ben. Yeah, how 90s was that? <laughs> Early aughts. Yeah. yeah, it's funny you, you mentioned breathing. Uh, there was something I posted on Twitter yesterday, I think, about remembering to breathe. And I've noticed it, not enough to consistently do something about it, but I've noticed that as I get amped up, as my anxiety ramps up, I forget to breathe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. It's because your body's focused on doing other things, right. which is being alert to danger, even though it's not rational danger, right? Like if I'm always worried about getting my jaw broken, which I often am, and this goes back to being in a crowd, right? If you're in a crowd, you're not as able to cover your ass, right? If you're on stage, at least you're going to see it coming. <laughs> you know I mean? Right. Right. Um, pre- presumably. Chris Rock. I was just going to say, yeah. <laughs> or Dave Chappelle. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. <clears throat> If you'll beg my forgiveness in this expression, I'm trying to productize a lot of this stuff so that I can do workshops and explain. I mean, literally just opened my PowerPoint and it's got a bunch of giraffes in it because it took, we, the family went to South Africa. So I got some pictures of giraffes and you see them quietly grazing and then someone steps on a twig and their heads all pop yep. and then the wind blows and they run for it. And that's what's happening to us. So this presentation I'm, I'm starting to give in the world is called Just Breathe, how something you're already doing can help you become a better partner, parent, and colleague. So you can see I'm kind of wedging wellness into the square corporate world, or at least I'm trying. Yeah. Between Friends and Neighbors and the uh, Mr. Rogers film, you seem to be really focused on doing things that are good, fundamentally good. And there's a still a little cynical baby that lives inside of me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That even when I do stuff, it's kind of like, man, what are your real motives here? Uh, or what is your real motive here? And I, I try not to think of good as in Opie Taylor or Richie Cunningham kind of good, because there is still a part of me that thinks that it's like, ah, dude, that's corny. But I love the fact that you are so focused on honest conversations and and putting positive energy out into the world. Was that something that was always an aim of yours? Was it something that kind of came about when you and your brother decided to do the movie? Was it something that came about with the podcast? It's become increased. It's become, I think I got aware of it when I met him. So I met Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers. Which also, I would say Mr. Rogers Dead or Alive is the number one person where if I was to have met him in person, I would have collapsed into a complete heap of tears. I wouldn't have been able to hold it together. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't a complete heap of tears, but I guarantee you I I teared up because, and that's part of what made me want to do the film. And I just, I, I point this out, not in terms of hubris, just in terms of how passionate I was about it. This is before the Hanks movie, before the other documentary that came out in like 2017 or 18. We started making it, in two, I met him in 2001. We started making it in 2006, started shooting it. We premiered it in 2010 and then licensed to PBS in 2012. And the answer to your question is, um, he was a galvan, he was like a catalyst, really, right? All this stuff was in me, all the stuff we just talked about, including, by the way, the cynicism and like the, a little bit of, I don't know, a little bit more of a smart ass. I mean, there was a long time where I wore pleather pants and gold lame shirts and, and wanted to be, way more glam Bowie 
than James Taylor. Those early days when I was playing CBs and, and Arlene Grocery and Mercury Lounge in the like late 90s, early aughts, it took me a while to just be like, what, dude, it ain't working. A, B, <laughs> you're not very good at it. You know? uh, once I just said, what you do well, G, C, D, and E minor, right? Now, that's about 2001, which is right about when I met him. I put a record out called Crash Site, and it, it's full of songs that are pretty true. In fact, I played two for him. It was the week before September 11th. It was the week that he uh, had just stopped taping his his shows, like 960 some episodes. I met him a week later, and it was week before September 11th. The record had a plane crashing on the front. Oh, crash site. It was a kind of allegory for uh, a plane crash and and a divorce. What surprise, right? For the kid who spent a lot of time on planes. It is currently the working title of the book, by the way. I don't know that that'll stick. And uh, I clearly did not release the record. It was supposed to be released on September 25th, and I didn't think that was a terrific idea. But immediately after meeting him and after September 11th, on September 12th, I was like, oh, shit. I just spent like all this money and all this time making this record. I can't put it out. What should I do? And immediately I thought, well, what would Mr. Rogers do? And I was like, well, Mr. Rogers would figure out a way to make it benefit people who need help. And so I re-recorded it on like September 14th in Brooklyn with a cellist and acoustic guitars and put it out as a benefit single and raised, I don't know, some pittance, but something. Something. And, and I feel like in a lot of ways, he didn't make me something I wasn't. He just helped catalyze something that might have taken longer or maybe that I didn't have language for. And Friends and Neighbors was born of the same idea of, well, Chris and I had set aside the licensing fees that we didn't spend on lawyers and marketing to try and do something else. And we hadn't done anything for years and years because I was busy working. So I said, well, what could I do that would continue the conversation? Friends and Neighbors was born of my father being like, well, instead of doing that goofy live stream thing you're doing on Facebook, how about you talk to people about things that matter? Look for the helpers. And I was like, oh, yeah, which is that thing Fred said, right? When uh, you see scary things in the news, you look for the helpers because when you look for the helpers, then there's hope. And so I just was like, well, I'll just start calling people and having conversations about more meaningful things, try and talk about this idea of what's deep in our lives, what's simple, right? Fred said to me when I met him, I feel so strongly that deep and simple is far more essential than shallow and complex. It's actually a riff on a book that a friend of his wrote that I went on to interview for the movie, this idea of contemporary culture is pretty shallow, right? The way most people are told to live their lives, what's broadcast for the most part, or what's narrowcast now on social media, it ain't, it ain't like hey, maybe you should spend more time reflecting in nature. That's not a message we get a lot of. It's mostly, if you buy this, you'll be happier. If you go here, it'll be more fun. If you drink this, you might get laid, right? (laughs) So I just started doing it and it's just been the best. I mean, it was a way to stay connected to humans at a time when we could not be. And it also gave me the excuse to call people out of the blue, like yourself, (laughs) and say, I really am interested in what you're doing and who you seem to be based on what I've seen or heard. And would you like to talk? And it's kind of changed my life. And that's what a couple of months ago, I just had a couple of these conversations. One with my friend, Kathy Kim, who's the first Asian American puppeteer on Sesame Street. She's the character Jiang. I was talking to her in January. I talked to a neighbor of mine who's the first transgender state senator in all of the United States, her name's um, Sarah McBride. Amazing. And some other folks. And again, just because I could, again, credit to Facebook and MTV and Rolling Stone, and I got a website, so I don't look like a super duper big freak. I, I guess it looks semi-palatable, and so people took the call and stuff. But I just realized that there was something to it. If I could find a way to articulately and, and simply and clearly tell my story and then use, then talk to others about their stories and where they overlap, because I'm the last guy on earth who should feel a sense of otherness, right? I'm a white man of Northern European descent. My people wrote the constitution. Right. That's not quite right. Not only were they they not literally my people, but I think we're probably from different parts of Europe, but it doesn't matter. Point being, the white men who wrote the constitution clearly were writing it for themselves, right? Right. And I think we see that playing out in real time right now. And I'm not down with that at all. And I really have spent a lot of my life feeling pretty darn outside. And then you talk to someone like Kathy or Sarah and you think, holy shit, Sarah lived in a body that didn't even feel like the right gender and had the courage to say out loud, "Mm -mm, not doing it. I mean, talk about, and I asked her about it in terms of like what kind of courage that took. And and she basically dismisses it because it's imperative, right? And I've taken a lot of inspiration for you, Mike. I've told you that. I just wanted to try and have honest conversations. And I think that's all Fred 
was trying to do. And I feel like I'm much sloppier. There are times when I say too much or too little, but I, I don't know, man. That's what Sarah said to me. She said, I've found that when I live as honestly and fully as possible, not only do I have fewer regrets, but it gives other people permission to do the same. And that's what I told you, you helped me do, man. That's why Mr. Rogers would say, what's most, what's mentionable is manageable, right? The idea that if we can talk about it, we got a path forward, but you got to start there. And back to my whiteness, it's like, they're not a lot of white dudes. I mean, I, dude, I was Googling documentaries about trauma yesterday. Guess how many there are? Not many. And there are zero with white dudes, unless they're in the military, because right. that's our understanding of PTSD. And I right. do not diminish that, but there's a much larger swath of the population, something like uh, 60% of all Americans have experienced at least one adverse childhood experience and something like 16% have experienced four or more. And when you get to four or more, you start to see like 4X suicidality, addiction, heart attack, all the things, right? And the adverse childhood experiences and environmental adverse experiences are the leading causes of death. You start to see that there's something going on here. And I've I see so clearly, and I think my challenge in this movie is to figure out how to make it clear to everybody else that what we're seeing with gun violence, with a, a lot of this continued insistence on a minority of white men of Northern European descent, that they make the rules for women and people of color and so forth and make you know, determinations around what's okay with gender. I just see it going all the way back to like, well, let's talk about your childhood, yeah. which is super trite, except there's data, see also Kaiser Permiente, that backs that shit up and makes it not esoteric and intellectual or psychological, but make it factual and biological and neurological. And that's what I found so exciting and freeing. It's, it's an interesting thing to think about and discuss. And with my therapist, I sometimes buck against that because I'm like, why does everything we talk about trace back to my childhood? Now, I'm not even necessarily saying that to my therapist. I'm saying that to myself, saying that to my therapist. Totally. We're saying that to my yes. therapist, saying that to myself. Totally. And the answer is that it does. Your experiences shape you. And one thing that I've disliked for a long time is when you mention an experience to someone and they're like, get over it. Right. Totally. Yeah. Because that's not something that happens. Well, again, but it's biology and neurology. So your answer to that moving forward is, hey, man, I'd like to, and I'm trying, but let me explain how that works. Right. right? Your frontal lobe, it takes about 20, 25 years to develop. And that's where you have the ability to order things and to be logical about things and to create stories about things, right? But behind that in the middle, right, is your emotional brain. And your emotional brain is like feelings, feelings, feelings. And behind that is your lizard brain, which is like, should I run or should I fight, right? And basically, until that frontal lobe is developed, all you have is emotional right. and lizard. So all you have is these huge experiences. If, for example, you were you know abused or neglected or you saw your, your dad beat up your mom or you saw gun violence, right? All you have is these huge experiences that get stuck in a place where you just can't process stuff the way that everybody else can. And then the rest of your nervous system, the, the, the chemicals, are basically pegged, right? So you're like always in the red zone on that like uh, on that RPM meter in the mm -hmm. car that is your body. So to your point, and, and I know I'm over explaining this and I know I'm preaching the converted, but it's like, it just isn't going to work like that. And, and anybody who says that is, and I just want to second you, Mike, I've heard that a lot. I've heard that a lot. And I've relished um, sharing that with people, particularly people who have said that to me a lot and having them go, oh, that makes sense. And then moreover, like, I'm not, not naming names here, but someone I love dearly was like, I just had lunch with an old friend of mine and he told me he's in therapy because he's dealing with shit from when he was a kid and he's 68. And you're like, uh-huh. Like, it doesn't go real. away. I wish, I wish my parents, does. yeah, I wish my parents would go see therapists because I know that they have unresolved stuff. And you're absolutely right. I worded that incorrectly. It's not a situation where you don't ever get over it, but you have to confront it. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I, I just said to my wife not so long ago, I was in therapy in New York City the whole time, damn near. But what I recognize now is how much of that was what I call frontal lobe therapy. I, I understood. Well, I understood from an intellectual standpoint, but I didn't have any sense of, of what was happening in my body, which it sounds so 
hackneyed, but it's just true. And now that I have some metacognition about what's happening in my brain and my body, you can feel stuff happening and you actually are gaining all kinds of new awareness. There's as many neuroreceptors in the rest of your body as there is in your brain, but we all think our brain's the one that's driving. The vagus nerve brings all kinds of information up from your gut and stuff. There's all kinds of information coming from your torso. So I don't know, it's just fascinating. Just flirting with it just for maybe pushing a year now. It just changes the whole way you think about the whole thing. I mean, you can tell I'm orienting almost all of what I do in the world around helping people. Because, dude, this is what Fred was talking about. Fred was bullied. Fred, like Fred had a traumatic childhood. And what Fred was told, honey, don't worry about it. Right. Don't talk about it. Don't let the other kids even know it's bothering you. Just go play. So he was silenced. And there's nothing worse than silence when you're hurting. The only thing you really need is somebody to wrap their arms around you and listen. There's something about when someone can say, oh, they see it, they hear it, right? That validation. I'm not sure that that's as imperative as somebody listening and being there for it, but there's something special when someone goes, and this is why I think what you're doing is a great service. The idea of saying, oh, right, me too. I feel that way too. And I, it's been such a discovery for me in the last nine months, year is the idea of like, Every one of these friends and neighbors I have a conversation almost always gets to this thing of, oh yeah, me too. And so the idea that we're less alone, I mean, we, we live in a country that's all about the individual mm-hmm. and that thinks that we, and the rugged individual, right? That pulls himself up by his bootstraps to, 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 to good and, and make his way through the world. And it's kind of bullshit. <laughs> so go ahead and listen to the Friends and Neighbors podcast. I'm sure you can find it just about every place that you find this podcast, Apple and Spotify and all of those good places. And uh, thank you to Benjamin for being so honest and open and for sharing his journey and for continuing the journey. Uh, it's not a destination. It's an ongoing thing. And uh, if you want to know more about Benjamin, you can find him at BenjaminWagner.com. Uh, he is on Instagram at Benjamin B. Wagner. He is on Twitter at MT Vitamin or MT Vitamin if you're British, I guess. And uh, you can find his music on all DSPs. You can find him on YouTube. Uh, He's got some videos up there. And I am looking forward to whenever he decides to finish this book and gets it out there, I'll be one of the first folks to go buy it. So uh, thanks again, Benjamin. Appreciate your time. Appreciate your thoughtfulness. Appreciate you. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, Once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, Follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as DetoxPodGuy. Uh, You can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, Rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings. Uh, Follow me on social media, like I said. Uh, follow our Patreon or subscribe to my Patreon, actually. Patreon.com slash DetoxicityPod. You get access to exclusive episodes. You get episodes a little earlier than the general public. You get a cool-ass sticker. Lots of stuff. Once again, Patreon.com slash DetoxicityPod. Quick shout-out to Calvin Williams for providing the music and uh, doing his magic on the logo, which was originally designed by Jacob Block. I thank you all for listening. I wish you all the best. Please take care of each other. Till next time, peace.